Welcome back to Atomic Hobo. We will continue our story of Britain's progress towards its first nuclear bomb. We ended last week with the decision to proceed. In the immediate post-war period, there were worries that America wasn't going to stick around and offer any kind of security for Western Europe. Remember, NATO wasn't formed until 1949. So there were four uncertain years before Western Europe was able to, as Beyonce might say, put a ring on it. We finally got America to commit to us to make it official in April 1949. But until then, could Western Europe rely on the Americans? Britain worried that the answer could be no. And so, in 1947, a small group in the cabinet decided, in secret, to go ahead and build an atomic bomb of their own. We've got to have this thing over here, insisted the Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan. We've got to have the bloody Union Jack on top of it. But of course, it takes years to create an atomic bomb. The decision to go ahead might have been taken in 1947, but Britain didn't explode her first nuke until Operation Hurricane in 1952 off the northwest coast of Australia. So how did she guarantee her safety until then? Not that having nuclear weapons is a guarantee of safety. How did she try to shore up her security, let's put it that way? Well, we know NATO was formed in '49, and that must have helped a lot of people sleep easier at night, but... That still leaves four years post-war, four anxious years where we were without nukes and without NATO. And so, in the summer of 1948, the British government invited the Americans over. They offered them some air bases and 60 B-29 bombers arrived. Yes, the same type of plane which had bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki just three years before. Now, those same planes were crouched in British airbases, well within bombing range of Russia. This was intended to send a strong message to the Soviet Union. So let's find out how it happened and what was going on that made Western Europe so anxious, so in need of Sending that strong message to Stalin. To save Europe from this disaster, General George C. Marshall, the United States Secretary of State, in 1947 made a dramatic appeal to the people of Europe. If they would work together, the United States would supply the money for food and raw materials essential to recovery. In April 1948, the Marshall Plan started. That was a massive programme of economic aid to war-torn Western Europe. Billions of dollars would be sent. The Marshall Plan wasn't motivated by benevolence. 
it was in America's interest, of course, to have trading partners and allies who were in good shape. But also, it was judged that at this very early stage in the Cold War, the biggest risk wasn't the Red Army marching across Europe. Instead, the fear was that if Europe wasn't offered assistance, then despair, inequality, hunger, strife, division might help their own communists win power. And they would no doubt be very happy to then take orders from Moscow. To minimise that threat, the Marshall Plan stood ready to offer billions and billions of dollars. There was another reason too, outlined in John Lewis Gaddis' classic book, The Cold War. He says that America knew that the Soviet Union would never allow their satellites to accept martial aid from America. They would force them to refuse it. And so these countries would naturally fall behind Western Europe in their recovery and reconstruction. And this would perhaps create ill feeling towards Moscow at the same time showing America as generous and morally upright, the Soviets as mean and resentful. So with the Marshall Plan, it was 1-0 to the Americans. And so Stalin made a move to perhaps even the score, the blockade of Berlin. Of course, we know that Berlin was positioned deep inside the Soviet zone of post-war Germany. And so, in order for the Allies to reach the western sectors in the city, they needed access across the Soviet zone, across what came to be known as East Germany, of course, the DDR. And so, access was permitted. This was all agreed back in Potsdam. Access was permitted by road, by rail, by canal and by air. Accepted routes had been agreed and free movement was allowed along these routes for the West. And that's how West Berlin, a tiny capitalist island in a big ocean of communism, was able to live, to thrive and to be supplied. But the big four, America, France, Britain and the Soviet Union, could not agree on Germany's post-war fate. The Western powers wanted to rebuild it. The Soviets wanted reparations. But the West was wary of this. After all, look what happened when Germany was hammered for reparations by the French after the First World War. We all learned at school that arguably that made room for the rise of Hitler and therefore the Second World War. So let's not go down that route again, lads. But the Big Four could not agree. Their sticking points were the revival of German industry, sorting out monetary reform and organising some kind of post-war German government. And at the root of it all, the Western approach, let's help them with reconstruction, let's help them rebuild. And on the Soviet side, it was let's bloody well punish them and rip reparations from them. Unable to reach agreement with the Soviets the West decided to just push ahead with their own plans for their particular western zones of Germany. So this, plus the billions now being made available through the Marshall Plan, 
made the Soviets anxious. The dastardly West are going to build up Germany again, make it strong, pump it full of their capitalist dollars. What can we do? Well, maybe we could try and force them out of Berlin altogether. Sinclair Mackay's excellent book on Berlin reminds us that the Soviets had always assumed that the Western powers would leave West Berlin anyway. Indeed, leave West Germany altogether. And then they could work at turning Germany communist and have total influence over it. That was their assumption after the war. And instead, here were the Western powers settling in, throwing billions of dollars about. And then, another shock to the Soviets, the Americans introduced a new currency for the Western zones, the Deutschmark. This too was introduced in spring 1948. The Soviets hated this idea and said it would not be legal tender in their sector of Berlin. But Mackay's book tells us that the Deutschmarks swept across the border into East Berlin like some unstoppable virus. Quote, All of this was intolerable to the communists. It corroded the foundations of the society they were trying to lay down. He goes on to say this was akin to a maddening itch to Stalinist skin. And so their solution seemed to be, let's try and push the Western powers out of Berlin completely. We must remember, of course, that when this plan was hatched in June 1948, the Soviets had no atomic bomb. America at this point still enjoyed a nuclear monopoly. So the Soviets perhaps clutched at a blockade because they didn't have the atomic bomb on their side. Yet... On June 24th, 1948, the blockade began. Road and rail and canal routes into West Berlin were blocked. People couldn't get in and neither could supplies. No food and no fuel. There was only 36 days worth of food left in West Berlin. And electricity for factories and workplaces, which came from Soviet-run plants in the east, was cut off. There was only one way left into Berlin from the west, and that was through the air. But surely it would be impossible to supply and feed half of a huge capital city by dropping off supplies by aeroplane. Two days later, the Berlin airlift began. The British and the Americans were determined to supply West Berlin with everything they would need. If the Soviets had cut off land access, then the West would simply build an air bridge. Flying into Gatov and Tempelhof, they dropped off 1,000 tonnes of supplies per day. Then it rose to 2,000 tonnes per day. They were getting better at it all the time. Then, a new airport, Tegel, was built to ease the demand on Tempelhof and Gatov. By September, they had perfected the operation so that they were dropping 7,000 tonnes in a single day. 
and by December, a flight was landing at each airbase every 90 seconds. And the ground staff had perfected the art of emptying the plane in just seven minutes. Just a few years ago, the RAF and the US Air Force had been dropping bombs on Berlin. And now they were back dropping supplies, keeping the city alive. Isn't history incredible? But this couldn't go on indefinitely. Someone would have to give way. Well, either that or it escalates into war. Of course, it couldn't have been a nuclear war at this point, as the Soviets didn't have the bomb. But certainly America had the option of launching a nuclear attack. But in such a period of high tension with Berlin blockaded, it would have been very clumsy and foolish to make such a threat openly. So Britain and America made the threats in a very roundabout way. So at the height of the Berlin crisis, in July 1948, 60 B-29 bombers arrived in Britain. One group left from Rapid City, South Dakota, and flew to Britain via Labrador. Another left from Tampa, Florida, flying via Bermuda. They would be stationed at RAF Scampton and RAF Waddington, both in Lincolnshire, and RAF Marham in Norfolk. All in the east of Britain, of course, where Moscow was easily within range. But of course, no one said anything as blunt and as obvious as that. In fact, the Americans played down their presence in Britain. They stressed that they were here temporarily and for training purposes. The bombers were met at Scampton by an excited media and the Daily Mail quoted Colonel John B. Henry as saying, We are here, we have been told, on manoeuvres. We are operational, but we are not primed and cocked. He added, We have had nothing to do with atomic bombs. And that's another important aspect of the B-29 deployment. The bombers which arrived in Britain in the summer of 48 were not silver plate, meaning they were not, at this point, equipped to carry atomic bombs. Those guys arrived the following year. Even then, the nuclear cores were not stored at the air bases with those bombers until 1952, says Kevin Rain in his book Churchill and the Bomb. So the arrival of the B-29s was all about making a gesture, about sending a message to Moscow. In fact, these bombers wouldn't even join in with the Berlin airlift. A Wisconsin newspaper said, quote, Air Force officials, while withholding comment, admitted that the groups of B-29s operating from England will take no part in ferrying food to Berlin. Their function will be to growl, said the Capital Times, Wisconsin. So they were in Britain to growl at Moscow. They didn't have any nukes, and even if the nukes had been there, 
They weren't yet equipped to carry them, but they sure could growl. But if American newspapers were talking of growling, the observer here in Britain took a, a gentler tone. Speaking of the arrival of the bomber crews at Scampton, the paper spoke of, quote, an English summer morning of the idyllic sort unexpectedly welcomed the Americans, who, as soon as the aircraft doors were opened, tumbled out onto Scampton's well-kept grass, patting it lovingly with the flat of their hands and picking daisies. The paper tells us the crew then got porridge, eggs and toast and were sent to bed. But that idyllic summer's day with its scents of warm grass, flowers and toast might have been ruined by one of the crews at Scampton who, the Daily Telegraph reported, brought a skunk with them. It's their mascot, they protested. <laughs> Back in Berlin, the airlift continued with great success and could be counted, surely, as a splendid propaganda victory for the West. They are delivering supplies, keeping the fires burning, keeping little kids warm and fed, whilst the nasty Soviets try to starve and block and bully West Berlin. The airlift was also a bit of an embarrassment to the Soviets, as it showed the, the material wealth and the technical superiority of the West. We will just keep on flying, keep on delivering, we don't get tired and we don't break down. Another good point is made in the book Cold War by Taylor Downing and Jeremy Isaacs. They say that the airlift showed America who the real enemy was. Remember, this was very, very early in the Cold War, only 1948. And so the airlift showed us that the bad guys, it's not the Germans. Drop that mindset. This is 1948. The war is over. It's now the Soviets who threaten us. As we move into 1949, the blockade continued with record numbers of flights landing in West Berlin. And then in April, NATO was formed, arguably pushed along into being by Soviet aggression. The blockade, by now, was hurting the Soviets too, as the Western powers had imposed a counter-blockade, not allowing things through to East Germany. And so, on 12th of May, both sides announced that their respective blockades were being lifted. And that allowed both sides to claim it as a victory. But you would have to agree that the Western powers came out of the blockades looking rosy. They had scored a huge propaganda victory. They had humiliated the Soviets. They had won the hearts and minds of so many West Berliners. The Americans got some air bases established in the UK and NATO was formed. Quite a good run there for the West, you would have to say. What could possibly go wrong to upset that? President Truman's dramatic announcement that Russia has created an atomic explosion sends reporters racing for Flushing Meadow, where Russia's Vashinsky arrives to address oh. the United Nations. Mr. Vashinsky, have you got any statement about President no, no, Truman's no, statement please, on the atomic please, bomb? Please, please, excuse me. Does Russia have the atomic bomb? Yes, sir. Well, what's your reply to me?
I hope you've enjoyed this look at the arrival in Britain of the Americans and the B-29s. Next week we'll look at the very difficult problem that posed of who is in charge of the nukes. They are American uh, bombs, American bombers are carrying them, but they're on British air bases. So who gets to press the button? And that was a very difficult and sometimes embarrassing problem for Britain, and we will look at that next week. If you want some more uh, nuclear podcasts, I uploaded a bonus one during the week for patrons. It's about the nuclear public information booklets released in 1979 by West Sussex County Council called The Householder's Survival Guide. And it features in the film When the Wind Blows, we see the character Jim reading it at his kitchen table. So I uploaded a podcast during the week about The Householder's Survival Guide and I then scanned and uploaded the booklet itself to Patreon. So that is there for you if you want to take a look at it, if you're a patron. And if you want to join my Patreon, you can do so from £1 a month. So please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank my newest patron who joined during the week, Graham Kamuk. Thank you, Graham. There is one um, particularly eerie bit in the booklet I liked. Um, I mentioned this in the bonus podcast. It's talking about survivors uh, in their fallout room, of course. You know that... You're advised to stay in your fallout room for up to two weeks. And it talks about the difficulties, of course, of, of keeping occupied, of, of you know being busy, take jigsaws and games into the room with you, take a comb and a mirror, keep up morale. And it says that whilst you're stuck in there for a fortnight, you might become unsettled by the lack of ordinary noise outside. It says, for example, there will be no birdsong, no church bells, no traffic noise. So it implies that there'll be a horrible, eerie silence outside after the bomb drops. And I just thought, maybe in rural parts of West Sussex that would be the case, but I just contrasted that with the noise we hear in threads after the bomb drops. In Sheffield, which of course is hit badly, we see the Kemp uh, family, Mr and Mrs Kemp, sheltering in their fallout room. And they don't hear an eerie silence. They're not pondering the absence of birdsong or church bells. They are surrounded by the roar of fire outside. And they can hear their neighbours crying and screaming for help through the wall. So I suppose it depends where you live. Are you in a city? Are you in Sheffield? Are you in a target area? Or are you in a nice rural part of West Sussex? So I just liked that contrast with what we see in threads and what this booklet was a warning survivors of. You might be a bit unsettled by the lack of birdsong after a nuclear war. So anyway, that podcast episode is there for you now on my Patreon page. Please do take a look, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And thank you for listening. I'll be back next week. <laughs>